Visionary Voices is a podcast from the Wallace Center at Winrock International developed to highlight the Food Systems Leadership Network, a national community of practice that connects emerging and existing leaders for peer-to-peer learning and support, professional development, resource sharing, and more. This series features conversations with leaders in the national good food movement, exploring their personal backgrounds, leadership journey, and stories from the field. Repeat after me, catalyze, coordinate, connect. That is how we operate. Catalyze, coordinate, connect, the three C's. This is Visionary Voices, stories from the good food movement, a podcast highlighting the voices of people dedicated to creating social change through food. I'm Megan Bucknam, and this audio series is comprised of interviews with some of the mentors of the Wallace Center's Food Systems Leadership Network. Hello, this is Paula Daniels. I'm the founder of the Los Angeles Food Policy Council and co-founder of the Center for Good Food Purchasing. In 2015, we started the Center for Good Food Purchasing. It is now, in fact, around the country. We're in 12 cities and 24 institutions around the U.S., but so we are now a national nonprofit and it is spreading around the country. If you wouldn't mind just telling me a little bit about where you come from. Uh, so that's always a, an interesting question when you talk to somebody who was raised as an army brat, which I was, as to where you're from. But I would say originally um, I am from Hawaii. I'm actually a, a registered native Hawaiian. My family's from Hawaii. Both sides of my family are from Hawaii. Um, my father is part Hawaiian and was raised on a sugar plantation in Maui. So we are not only from, but of Hawaii. Uh, But then I ended up living in places all around the world uh, growing up because my father did join the army. Hmm. So I lived in Berlin, I lived in Georgia, I lived in Omaha, Nebraska before we returned back home to Hawaii. And then we lived in a few other places around the country. Then I ended up settling in Los Angeles when I went to college. I was wondering if you would take a moment to just describe your involvement in the good food movement. It's not your typical path, but I basically followed my passion. What motivated me to get involved in the first place, I think, was being from Hawaii and having the experience of um, being exposed to, in a very personal way, um, what large-scale agriculture was like, particularly in a community that Uh, Hawaii, where it became a completely dominant economic force. So my father was raised on a sugar plantation. My grandfather worked in the mill, the Punane sugar mill on Maui. Um, And he was the maintenance engineer for the mill. Everyone in my grandfather's generation worked in either the fields or factories of sugar. And it was the dominant source of uh, economic... um, Well, it was the dominant economy in Hawaii and the dominant culture in Hawaii. So much of what Hawaii is about is because of sugar. And the the sugar industry was what was the source of a huge political upheaval in Hawaii. In 1893, there was an overthrow of the Hawaiian government because of sugar and because of actually tariffs on sugar that the Americans were imposing. And the American business people in Hawaii didn't want to have to have a tariff imposed on their export of sugar to the United States. So they decided, well, let's make Hawaii part of the United States. So they just took it over. I mean, quite literally by force. Um, There was a military coup um, that was later found by President Cleveland to be 
illegal and he asked those leaders of the military coup and the self-imposed uh, self-installed president whose name was Sanford Dole D-O-L-E uh, to step down and they didn't so I'm giving you a lot of history here but it was the history of Hawaii is writ in sugar and food and food policy which at that time was you know to grow a lot um, in as many places as you can and to export it without much consequence to purchasers in the United States. A lot of it came out of the Civil War actually because uh, sugar production in the United States was down so they were building it up in Hawaii. So all that, you know, my own family history was tied up in that um, being part English, part Hawaiian and some of the other uh, strands of ethnicity that were that came to Hawaii to work in the fields was tied up in all that and so it was an exposure that I had at a young age, just seeing how you know, there were vast fields of sugar in Hawaii. And quite frankly, my family was grateful for the work. At that point in time, there weren't too many other options. So that, though, experience of the economic dominance, but also the fact of the you know, environmental kind of preoccupation, if you will, the environmental occupation of Hawaii by sugar was something I was aware of. And also the fact that Hawaii wasn't growing its own produce. My grandfather had a little kind of victory garden uh, during World War II. They, almost everybody had those little gardens where they grew their own food. But the produce in the stores was very bad. Um, it was shipped in from the mainland, we call it, um, from California. And it was, oh, you know, it had been picked, like it took a week to, back then it took a week to get across on a cargo ship. And um, it was pretty wilted and stale and terrible. And we had to pay an awful lot for it because it was shipped over. And we couldn't even have the sugar. Like we were not allowed to have the sugar from the mill. The sugar was shipped um, raw to California and then we would buy it once it was shipped back, but it was much more expensive. So all those things that just were our personal exposure to those issues. And then um, I got more involved in it through water policy. So fast forward, um, you know, many years later, um, I, was appointed to the board of the, the Bay Delta Authority Board, which was a high-level board that oversaw the State Water Project. And the State Water Project is the biggest lift of water in the world, you know, biggest conveyance of water um, that conveys water from Northern California to Southern California. Most of the water in California is in the North, the need for it is mostly in the South. And the aqueduct, the California aqueduct runs through the Central Valley of California, which is uh, big scale agriculture, much like the sugar industry in Hawaii was. So um, I had that in mind. I was mostly working in environmental water policy at the time. I was an attorney also at the time in private mm -hmm. practice, but I'd been appointed to a number of um, political positions, um, commissions and board positions. And then I also was very closely involved with a number of environmental groups, either by serving on their board or in other ways. In 2005, um, Antonio Viragoso became mayor of Los Angeles. He asked me to serve in his administration. The idea of being able to participate in public policy and to influence public policy toward environmental protection felt like such a privilege and an honor that I'd been given. So he became mayor and I went into his administration and the position I was interested in was public works. And so he appointed me to that. An opportunity came up through a friend of mine who was a deputy mayor in the mayor's office who wanted to celebrate the 30th anniversary of farmer's markets. He knew that I was interested in food policy because it was something that I told you I'd been thinking a lot about my whole life. 
Mm -hmm. Um, It was largely a matter of cocktail conversation or lunchtime conversation that Mm -hmm. I'd sort of pound the table and say, we need to do something about the farm bill or we need to have more influence as, as, you know, as consumers. And what about our influence as a city? He invited me to this meeting to plan the 30th anniversary of farmers markets. And we all recognized what that meant, that farmers markets were the original idea of trying to start a regional food economy. So we saw this as an opportunity to have the city take a leading role in food policy. I started talking to folks about it and researching it and developing the concept of how it would work with the goal in mind that at the 30th anniversary, which would be in September of 2009, that the mayor would announce a task force that would look um, into and report back on what a regional food policy framework would be for the city to undertake and whether or not there should be a food policy council. So that's how I got involved in food policy. I just love the kind of discussion of family heritage into um, your professional career that spanned law and very much public administration and then really into public policy. I know you founded the Food Policy Council. Just tell me a little bit more about that experience. The, the thing that I, I think was quite encouraging about creating this idea of forming a Food Policy Council was that the mayor accepted the idea almost immediately. I mean, it was instantaneous from the time he was presented the idea to the time he said, this is a good idea. This is great. Let's do it. Mm. And I want to say that it does sometimes take that sort of courage of leadership to make these things possible. So, you know, I did quite a bit of research. I had a goal that it should last past the administration of Mayor Viragosa if we're going to do this. I wanted it to last so that it could be a meaningful contribution to society independent of whether we were in existence. I wanted something that really, you know, had more of a sense of being something everybody could participate in. So we needed to have a group that was um, intergovernmental. So that was going to happen by persuasion and collaboration. And that I was familiar with from the water world. And our philosophy was to have a lot of community input because I had been in water mm-hmm. for a long time. I did think in terms of systems, uh, water is a very large system, especially in California. When I started looking at this, the system aspect of food, if that makes sense, was mm-hmm. what really became very apparent to me, particularly through you know, growing up in Hawaii and seeing how the whole system was working, political, economic, environmental, how it created those end stage problems of access or environmental devastation or economic marginalization. So it could create those things. And I would say my thinking is probably shaped by being from Hawaii. And the grandfather that I told you about who worked in the mill, when we came back to Hawaii after living really all over the world, and not really remembering Hawaii at all. He wanted to teach us Hawaii. And one of the things he taught us was the Hawaiian principle of malama or stewardship. And he told me when I was nine years old, just coming back to Hawaii, um, that in Hawaii, we believe in malama aina or caring for the land. That's a Hawaiian principle. It may not have been in effect in Hawaii very much up to that point, but (laughs) something that the indigenous population, if you want to call it that, but the Native Hawaiians really believed in, and he wanted us to very much understand that. 
so he told me about the Iroquois law of the seventh, um, the seventh thinking of the seven generations. He told me about how he didn't believe the land really belonged to us, but we were taking care of it for the next seven generations. You know, as we're, you think about the food system, there is that concept of, can we bring that thinking back into how we manage all of this? That I was really driven by as we were putting the idea for the Food Policy Council together. Once we started doing the work of the Food Policy Council, I, I developed a mantra to help everybody understand. And it's seriously a mantra. I made everybody repeat it. <laughs> and questions, we'd start gathering people together and they go, well, how are we going to work? Well, what are we going to do? And I said, we are going to repeat after me, catalyze, coordinate, connect. That mm. is how we operate. Catalyze, coordinate, connect, the three C's. And every meeting we'd had, I'd have people repeat that so that there wouldn't be any concern about whether we were going to reinvent anybody else's wheel. You wouldn't mind kind of walking me through how um, maybe this Food Policy Council and that cross uh, food supply chain work inspired your um, other work with the Center for Good Food Purchasing. The idea of having a procurement policy was something that I personally had been interested in since I served on the Bay Delta Authority. So back in 2003, thinking that we needed to have larger scale market influence on, um, on agriculture. So I'd always been one of those folks who, who wanted to use my purchasing power, small as it was, you know, to, um, to, to at least say what, to like vote for what I wanted in the food system. So I would always buy organic and it wasn't that easy to find in the 1990s. Um, but I saw the rise of organic over that time. So by the time I was on the Bay Delta Authority in 2003, I was thinking, boy, how do you do this on a scale that really starts shifting the needle um, uh, in a big way? And so I, I personally was always interested in a procurement policy for major institutions. So the Good Food Purchasing Program came out of a working group where our program was adopted. And within a year, we saw real success in the program that there was interest in it in nationally. So folks were getting briefings, they wanted something like it, but they weren't sure how to do it for themselves. And um, we're thinking of trying to, you know, recreate it, but, you know, yeah. we'd, we'd already had all the elements of it, but it was an LA program. So we realized that, you know, we could actually maybe benefit people by having it become an independent program. And in 2015, we decided to split it off from the Food Policy Council. So we split off and we started the Center for Good Food Purchasing. So wow. that's how we got to that. And now it is now, in fact, around the country. We're in 12 cities and 24 institutions around the U.S. We're in San Francisco, Oakland, Chicago. Um, we are about to be adopted by Austin. We are in... Um, Boulder, um, New York is um, in the pipeline. There's a number of other cities in the pipeline. Um, but so we are now a national nonprofit and it, it is spreading around the country. Wow. Expanding a citywide working group into its own national nonprofit takes a lot of imagination, Paula. I would love to hear about anything that inspires your work especially anything specific to the rich global experiences that you were able to have and your unique family heritage. So I have a lot of thoughts that are sort of jumbling around right now in terms of 
you know, what drove me to this work, which is, I think, what you were asking or what inspired me. Mm-hmm. I'll mention a few things. I mean, one was, um, you know, my, my grandfather's sense of this relationship that we have to the natural environment as being one of profound respect and gratitude, which um, I think many people understand. There are so many people who do feel that way, but it is something that has got, can get lost in, in the kind of dust of everyday living. And it's not really only the province of native societies or First Nations, but it's something I think natural to every society. Part it could be the teachings that are passed down, a part it could be the language, part it could be, you know, mythology that still remains powerful. But, and it's not everyone in Hawaii, but many people in Hawaii and those in particular who, who are still connected to traditional Hawaiian values will really respect and honor that and see that, that language. So really, what I'm talking about is a culture of respect. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what is, um, it feels a little tragic to me that, that uh, if people operate without that culture of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's at the heart of a lot of confusion right now in our country. So the other influence in my life was my, my, um, my mother did get involved in politics. <laughs> So my mom was, uh, mom was a housewife when I was growing up. Um, and then she went back to school uh, later. And, you know, when I was, I watched her graduate, I watched her get her college degree. So she went back to school and I, I watched her get her college degree when I was 13. And she continued on with her education, you know, finally reentered the workforce later on and went into special education, but she also became very involved in, you know, um, equity issues in the, in politics and, um, became an elected official in Hawaii. So I started seeing the power of politics and how you could influence policy. My mother was very supportive of women's rights and the environment. Uh, she saved, uh, uh, Mount Olamana in Hawaii from development. <laughs> so she also, you know, created domestic violence shelters and things like that. So I also saw the, the, the you know, what you can do um, in politics when you have that, you know, the right people in place. So that I think did help, you know, I was getting involved at the time anyway. I got involved with a group called Heal the Bay in, you know, 1989 and my mom ran for office in 1990. So it was kind of like at the same time, we're, we're both getting engaged at the same time in different ways, but I was very inspired by what she was able to do. I love hearing about the beautiful connection you have with your family, and how those relationships have made such a deep impression on your life. Throughout your career, did you have any professional mentors that were able to help you in the same way as your family? I did not have any mentors until I got into the environmental movement. I was, Mm. um, I, I started practicing law in 1981, and there were very few women in the field. When I entered the the world of law as a young attorney there I was usually the only woman I was definitely the only woman in the law firm usually the only woman in the courtroom usually mm-hmm. the only woman anywhere and for sure the only woman of color <laughs> um it was a uh a, 
a difficult world to enter into. I started getting involved in public policy when I, you know, I was a partner in a law firm and then I learned about this group called Heal the Bay, an environmental group called Heal the Bay. I did get involved with them as a volunteer and I met this woman named Dorothy Green, um, who was the founder of Heal the Bay. Dorothy Green was the first mentor I'd ever had. And she was such an important person to me. I'm so inspired by her um, that it led to a whole different career for me. I don't know why I'm tearing up. <laughs> <laughs> I am not, I don't, you know, I th thought I'd gotten past the point where I would cry when I talked about Dorothy. But, um, you know, I don't know, there's something in the air today. <laughs> but um, she was brilliant. I mean, I really was very, learned so much from her because she she drew artists to heal the bay and mm. had them prepare you know do she had a lot of creativity in the work and inspired a lot of creativity in the expression of the issues uh, she worked for solutions she worked with policymakers but if they weren't you know holding up to their word she wouldn't mind protesting and shouting out of a bullhorn and organizing a protest on the steps of city hall she mostly worked for finding solutions and trying to help people understand how they could do it she had a lot of respect in other words you know i, th I think you find your mentors where where you will and how you find them and sometimes they find you sometimes you find them sometimes you find each other somehow but having somebody you can learn from in that way is really valuable. Having a strong connection with a mentor can play such an important role in personal development. And I think when we can multiply these individual relationships, um, we can start to really see a huge impact on a whole advocacy movement. With this idea in mind, do you have any thoughts regarding where you think the good food movement may be in the next 25 years? I can tell you what I hope for. What I hope for is that we can really start weaving together all the different strands of what the food movement are into really strongly designed regional approaches. And I have an idea that we could kind of mimic the way it's worked with renewable energy. I was noticing recently, like, look at this. I remember how solar power started as a night, you know, in the 70s with some um, incentives from Jimmy Carter, who was really trying to address the oil crisis and tried to do something on the federal level, which was then reversed by Reagan. So it sputtered along for a while. But then the, the activists in the clean air movement kept bringing it back up, you know, because fossil fuel energy was polluting the air. So they kept bringing it back up. And in the 21st century, they started working on a regional basis. So they started developing renewable portfolio standards um, meaning that every region would have their own regional goals for renewable energy. So it's not merely a matter of setting goals, but also having the political and public will to align the policies around it and also to align the economic incentives and the financial support around it. Um, but then it takes coordinated thinking. But I think we can do that in food. I think it'd be really great if every regional area had strong leadership and it could be from the municipal governments um, ideally they would see their role as leaders in the regional food system but lead a coordinated approach to setting similar targets that 
you'd want, for example, 30% of food by 2030, that's just an example, would um, not only serve the local food economy, but would be grown um, in an environmentally sustainable way, would support fair labor practices and animal welfare. Um, so if you could move the needle to that place, if you could move to where you also have metrics for um, communities serving food that you know, supports healthy food access, um, I think that'd be really powerful and important in each region to have goals like that, that um, every region's aware of, and that you can help each region you know, get to those goals by sharing your best practices or what your policy innovations were, what your economic incentives were that would support all of that. This idea of transferring knowledge between regions is very compelling. And I think it's going to be important for best practices to be shared not only between other regions, but with other generations. So I ask you, Paula, what advice do you have for folks currently working or interested in working within the good food movement? Two things I want to say. One is um, learn how to surf. And the other is <laughs> uh, you can find your posse anywhere. So in the learning how to surf part, I want to say that um, uh, you know, I, I, sometimes people have asked me how I got involved in certain issues and I will say a lot of it for me, I could characterize as instinctive, but sometimes instinct is built on experience. So hmm. what I think of uh, how I operate sometimes, and I think many people do this too, is that I can feel momentum and ideas and then want to kind of capture momentum. To me, that's like surfing. So in surfing, it's, it's different than baseball. So baseball has a lot of rules, right? It's a great sport. But it has these rules about where you are and where you stand. Or it's different from hiking. So hiking, you have a path and you move up. You might need a map. But in surfing, you actually don't know at all what your day is going to be like or, you know, what kind of waves you're going to catch. But you, you need to be in the water. Uh, you need to have equipment. Like you need to have your surfboard. If it's cold, you need to have your wetsuit. And you kind of would have a sense of where the best waves are and how they break. So you can go to that area, but then you sit in the water and you wait for the wave to come and you can feel it. You know, when a wave comes and you're in the water, you can feel the tug. And the idea is that you paddle and paddle and paddle and catch that wave. And you don't always know which wave you're gonna get or how that wave's gonna unfold, but you gotta feel it and be ready to catch it when it comes. So a lot of times things happen in that way, you know, so I think being prepared to surf and um, you never know who might be in your posse with you. And it's not always clear at the start of an undertaking who your allies are going to be, but I think being open to who they might be and being open to uh, finding them anywhere and not, not ruling out government or business or any sector. Um, there might be people who have great ideas in any one of those areas um, and being open to what they would have to contribute, I think is really important. Thank you, Paula, for sharing your personal story and sage advice with us today. I know I will be paying closer attention to the waves and allies in my own professional journey, thanks to you. Mentorship can play a critical role in the growth and success of emerging leaders. 
the Food Systems Leadership Network offers a semi-annual community food mentorship program where emerging leaders can apply to work with truly extraordinary and dedicated food systems leaders. If you or someone you know would be interested in becoming a mentor or applying for mentorship, contact us at fslninfo at winnock.org. That's F-S-L-N-I-N-F-O at W-I-N-R-O-C-K dot O-R-G. Thank you so much to all the leaders and mentors involved in the Food Systems Leadership Network, a community of practice to support leaders and staff of nonprofit community-based organizations working on food systems change. You can learn more about the Wallace Center and the Food Systems Leadership Network on our website, wallacecenter.org. This podcast was created, edited, and produced by Megan Bucknam and Hannah Melling. 